If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I am J.A. Lovelock, a barrister and an author. Welcome to my podcast, Behind the Yellow Tape. On this episode, we hear from Michelle McPhillips, a mother who lost her son to knife crime. On the 25th of February 2017, Michelle McPhillips' life changed forever. It was the day her 28-year-old son, Jonathan McPhillips, was fatally stabbed. Jonathan, affectionately known as J.J., was acting as a peacemaker in a brawl outside Islington Town Hall in North London, when sadly he became the victim. His mother Michelle joins us on Behind the Yellow Tape to share her story. Hello Michelle and welcome to the programme. So let's start from the very beginning. Who was Jonathan and can we call him JJ? Yeah, I prefer to call him JJ. Good, good, um, good. Yes. His full name was Jonathan James McPhillips, and I didn't want him called John, so I changed his nickname to JJ. Well, let's let's talk about his childhood. Tell us about JJ. JJ was my only child. Um, he grew up in a big Irish family. Um, I'm the eldest of seven in my family, so JJ had quite a prominent position being my only child as well. Um, he grew up in Islington, born and bred in Islington. And basically, he was a DJ. He loved motorbikes. He loved anything that was fast. He loved cars, just anything that was a frightening experience. And he was quite accident prone. Um, he was famous before this because he got hit by a lorry at Highbury Corner at the age of 11 and nearly lost his leg as well. Mm. And that's because his bicycle wheel got caught in the back of an articulated lorry and he got dragged under. So he's already had um, an experience of hospital life. And that's quite significant to the ending of the story of the end of his life. Um, He took three years to recruitate from that. But he was a fun, loving, loved life character. He was a proper Gemini, split personality. Um, He could love and hate you in the same breath. And he was just a typical teenager who gave me hell. (laughs) And then once he became a father on the birth of his first child, Lexi, um, JJ totally changed and become a really nice young man and a loving dad. And he had his partner, Kennedy. They were childhood sweethearts. And then Evie came along two years later. And that's really Jay's life, was his children. And he loved football as well, didn't he? Yes, Arsenal fanatic, absolute Arsenal fanatic. Um, Used to go up every Saturday if we couldn't afford to buy a ticket and wait outside to see if he could get a cheap ticket just towards the closing of the gates. But Arsenal, true and true, true and true. 
So take us back to that day, the 25th of February, 2017. To correct you, it was the 24th of February. Oh, the 24th, okay. Yeah, but the reason you're getting the 25th is because it happens around half 11 and midnight. That's why there's two different dates on the actual incident. So what happened on that day was at half past five, I was in my mother's house, which is a place that JJ called home, and that was Milner Square, just behind Upper Street. And basically at half past five, we were sitting in my mum's kitchen me and the kids messing about with Jay. And they were sitting up on my mum's workbench in her kitchen and she was telling them in an Irish accent, get your dirty asses off my workbenches, you know. <laughs> and we were all giggling and laughing. So that's really important to remember that those moments before all this happens hours later, that we were all actually having a good time in my mum's house. So I went off to work at the Green Man pub in Essex Road that we run as family pub. And uh, JJ decided to go out um, for his cousin's birthday. Now, Jay really didn't ever go out. He was allergic to alcohol and he didn't really go clubbing, to be honest with you. So it was actually quite unusual for him to be out in Upper Street. So he went out with his cousin as they were walking back from the Angel Islington. His cousin remembered that he'd left his phone at my mum's house. So he cut through Thurbiton Street to get to my mum's house through the hole in the wall. And JJ walked on down to the town hall because they were going to go into the karaoke bar there. And basically he was standing smoking cigarettes and stuff with some of his friends because JJ was quite well known in Islington because our family came from Northern Ireland. We grew up in the Caledonian Road area. Then we moved to Upper Street. JJ played in Barnsbury, went to school in Highbury. So he knew people from all over the borough. And like I said, we ran a pub in Essex Road as well. So he's standing there. And from what I got from all the police reports and all the coverage of the whole incident is that there's four cars parked in front of JJ and they're standing there. And the next thing they know, there's a car with people in it in front of him. And six boys come up the side street of the town hall, waving machetes and knives. And they go towards this car. But as they're approaching the car, four people jump out of this car and run. And there's a fifth person in the back of the car, quite heavy set young lad. And as he comes out of the car on the driver's side, basically somebody sticks a knife in his backside. And JJ recognised him as his friend's 17-year-old son. Um, the boy obviously jumps back into the car for safety and tries to get out the other side. And in the meantime, Jay's approached the car and this individual puts a 16-inch blade straight through my son, which breaks two of his ribs, punches the pumping valve of the heart, and punches his lung. JJ runs to save his own life, and then he got chased by somebody else with a knife. And he managed to run back up towards Thebiton Street, and he got outside, be at one club. and. 
when he got to be at one club, he had obviously run out of breath and he's lifted his T-shirt and said to the security on the door, help me, mate, I've been done. And the security guy there said all he could see was this finger-thumb-sized cut in my son's chest. So he sat him down and started to give him first aid. And a friend of my son's come walking down the street and sat with my son whilst they called an ambulance and stuff for him. And the next thing I know about it is that my nephew rang me and for some strange reason, for the first time ever, I had my car parked right outside the pub and I had my car keys on top of the till, which I never do, and my phone. And I noticed the phone was ringing and I knew something was wrong because I just called last orders and I thought that's strange for him to be ringing me. So I answered the phone and I got told, quick, Michelle, come. JJ's been stabbed. He's in Upper Street at the top of Cross Street. And the scream that came out of me turned off the sound system because we have a sound limiter in the pub. And I just grabbed my keys and shouted, I'm going, I'm going, and left the pub. I couldn't think for a moment where Cross Street was, but I managed to get it into my head. And I got to the top of Cross Street. I see the ambulances, so I abandoned my car there and run across. And at that point, they were picking JJ up to put him onto a stretcher. And I see Jay, and he was still conscious at this point, but there was no blood. And I thought, well, that's a good sign. But as they picked him up, blood started to seep out onto his T-shirt. And they put him in the back of the ambulance in a sitting up position. And we're in the back of this ambulance. And the lady said to me, I have to make a hole in his throat to get air in. And I said, don't worry about me. Just get on with dealing with him. I said, he's the patient. And she goes, do you want to stay? I said, just do what you've got to do. Don't waste no more time. And with that, JJ's looked at me, sat upright, grabbed my hand and called me mum. And at that point, Mm. I knew I was in trouble Mm. because JJ used to call me Michelle because he was my only child. When we went out, he would call me Michelle. And we had a joke because if he said to me, mum, I'd go, I ain't got no money. (laughs) You know, that joke of mum, have you got any money Mm. that teenagers do? Mm. Anyway, so... With that, I said to him, lay back and just do me a favour and keep breathing. That's all you need to do right now is keep breathing. But as he's laid back, the back of the ambulance doors opened and there was two guys there in like big boiler orange suits. And I remembered looking at them and thinking, well, they're not Ghostbusters because they're not in white. (laughs) And it's mad what goes through your mind Mm. at those times, Mm. you know. Mm. But they looked at me and they said, Mum, we need you to get out. We need him out. We need to work on him now on the street. Mm. So basically they take him out of the ambulance. They ask the security guard from the club to take care of me at the side of the ambulance. And they start cordoning off the street. And the medical team start to work on Jay. And I'm just at the side of the ambulance just muttering to myself Mm. keep breathing keep breathing keep breathing my mum turns up because now obviously words got out my whole family's starting to come down and congregate and people are congregating 
And I asked the police to move people on because it wasn't a circus for mm. people to watch. Mm. And my mum come and they let my mum come to where I was. And she said, what do you think? And I went, this is bad. This is really bad. And she said, no, no, look, they're working on him. And we were there, what I believe, for another five minutes. And all of a sudden I had this experience of a big exhale of breath come out of my mouth like a like that. And I looked at my mum and I went, I've just took his last breath. I said, he's dead. Mm. And she went, no, 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 he can't be dead, Michelle. She went, look. And as I turned round, I see them crack open his chest. I see them pull him down the bed and hook his feet up. And I remember thinking they've hooked you up like a chicken. And I know from watching medical programs, that's a sign of trying to get blood flow back up the body. And the next thing I see was them putting their hands into my son's chest. And I see them touching his heart, hmm. pumping bags of blood above him and pumping bags with their hands. Hmm. Because obviously there's no machinery there and they're really working hard on him. With that, I then get told that he's got to be taken straight away to the hospital. He needs emergency operation. Um, I'm going in a police car. And I said, yeah, that's fine. I've done this before. I said, when he had his accident at Highbury, I went in the back of the police car because I know it means the medical team's working on him. So we went down to the Royal London in Whitechapel. And as we get there, they take him out of the back of the ambulance and half his face is covered with a white cloth. And I said to my mum, I told you. And she went, no, look, Michelle, they're running with him. They're running. So they ran him in, took him straight in. And as I arrived into the hospital, I met this young chap. I won't mention names because of legal reasons. And I said, what are you doing here? And he says, well, I got stabbed. I went, where? He said, Upper Street. And I said, well, my Jay's just been stabbed in Upper Street. What's going on? And he, at that point, the doctor called the young man in. Anyway, we went into the waiting room. We were in there for nearly three and a half hours. Um, there was a load of um, ladies in there, um, church ladies. And I just looked at them and I said to them, are you church people? And they said, yes. And I said, could you do me a favour? I said, I'll pray for my son. And she said, what's happened? I said, my son's been stabbed. I said, but I know this isn't good. It's really not good. Then all Jay's friends and that started accumulating. And I told them, all, oh, go in the waiting room. Don't be bothering people. Just all sit calmly in the waiting room and wait. And I went and stood outside. And at this point, a man in a white coat walks towards me and I just knew it was Jay's doctor. And I said, is JJ alive? And he went, who are you? And I told him who I was. And he said, it's um, 60, 40. And I said, 60, 40, what do you mean? 60 to who and 40 to who? He said, 40 to him if he can fight. He said he's had four cardiac arrests mm -hmm. and basically we're just bringing him round now as best we can. He goes, but you'll be put into the comatized machines, you know, where they put them in a coma to help them breathe and everything. He goes, and he's going up into ICU. And I said, okay, fine. So with that, I sent everybody home and I went up to ICU with him. 
And one of the nurses said to me, are you JJ McPhillips's mum? And I said, yes. And she said, are you on your own? And I said, yes. And she goes, that's not good. She goes, you need somebody to be here with you. I said, are you telling me my son's dying? And she said, no, I'm not telling you that, but I'm telling you you're going to need support. You need somebody to be here with you. So I called my husband back at the time and told him not to tell anyone because I didn't want everybody gathering at the hospital. So we sat in ICU for four days and I kept saying to them, can you please check his brain activity? And they kept saying to me, why? I said, because last time he was on one of these machines, I said, if I touched him, he would move or he would wiggle, you know, or there would be movement or his eyes would move or something. I said, but look, I says, and he doesn't like being kissed. And I was kissing him. And I said, he's not doing anything. I says, and my son would hate to be a vegetable. I said, because last time he, he was in this predicament, when he woke up, he told me that if anything ever happened to him again, where he couldn't do things for himself, he wouldn't want to live. So I said to them, please check the brain activity. And they said, we won't do that until the organs all kick back in and stuff like that. So on date of the 28th of February, they told me they were going to do the brain test. And that's because I kept on at them again about it. And I already brought a priest in the day before to bless him. And his dad said to me, he goes, Misha, is he dying? I to them, he's not. I says, but for me, I said, my JJ died at the scene. I said, because since we've been here, I said, he's not reacting to nothing. So they did the test at half past six and they have to do it again at half past eight. And they came back and told me, um, Jane is, JJ's actually brain dead. And I said, well, you're not telling me anything I don't know. I know that. I said, what's the next procedure? And she said, um, well, we switch off the life support and then he'll slip away naturally on his own. And I said, right then. I said, well, he's got two cousins coming from over Essex way. I said, can we keep the machines on till they've said their goodbyes? Because I want them to think they'd got there before. And I said, and we need to do it today because it's one of the children of the family's birthday tomorrow. I said, and I don't want to mark that child's birthday with the death of my son. Mm -hmm. I says, and you know, the switching off of the machine today or tomorrow or next week is still the switching off of the machine. So I asked him if I could lay on the bed with him. And the answer was no, because of the machines and the wires and et cetera. So I said, can you sit him upright then so I could embrace him? So at half past nine that night, they sat him up. And obviously, you have to give the nod. So they switched off. And it actually took over 20 minutes for JJ's heart to stop beating. And then as I went to leave the hospital that night, I told them that Miller's undertakers would be coming to collect him. And that's when the real drama starts. They turn around and tell me, you can't have your son's body. He's now evidence in a murder case. And the minimum, the minimum time we keep the body is 28 days. I said, but that goes against all my religious beliefs. 
I said, because we're an Irish family and we bury our dead in three days. I said, he's not going to be able to be seen. We're not going to be able to touch him. I said, this is so alien to us because that's not how we treat our people, you know. Anyway, he went to the morgue. They let me go and see him in the morgue the next day before they froze him. And they brushed his hair the wrong way. And I remember looking at him and thinking, that's how you would have looked older. But that was the last time I seen my son look like him himself. The next time I see my son is after 28 days because I phoned them every day because I wanted his body. I wanted him put to, to peace, you know. And they gave me him after 28 days. And my friend worked in Miller's Undertakers. And I said to him, what do you think? And he said, Michelle, don't come and look. He goes, he's really badly bruised from the freezing. Um, we can't dress him because of the skin. And I said, okay. So I told the family and my mum and sister went mad. They said, you, you should go and see him. I said, I don't want to remember my child like that. But they went down to see him. Some of the family went down to see him. And then my sister called me and said, come, it's okay. And I went with my dad. And I literally walked in there, took one look. They put makeup all over my son. I just screamed my head off saying, that's not my child. That's not my child. Because what I seen was awful. And I ran out of there and ran home. And then we had the procedure of organising the funeral, then the police coming to us. When the police turn up on the day I switched off the machines, the only thing they were interested in was JJ, a gang member. And I kept saying to them, he could never be a gang member. He wasn't brought up like that. And it took them six weeks to prove that JJ wasn't a gang member. They arrested four people for JJ's murder. One was actually put in prison for six months and then released because the CCTV um, detective for the Metropolitan Police actually changed his evidence the day before the court case and that threw the whole court case out. He changed it from 100% to 60%, which throws the whole court case out. So we lost the person that we believe killed JJ. I then had to wait three years for a coroner's court, which was actually held at the Old Bailey for the safety of the boy that had been arrested and the boy that had been stabbed because both of them had ended up back in prison for obvious reasons and basically got nowhere with that other than that the thing that JJ died of was lack of oxygen to the brain and the stab wound caused that, obviously. Um, and after 28 days, your murder case becomes a cold case. If they can't find anything after 28 days, they actually don't look very hard. Um, I kept pressuring them. The first year, I could phone them all the time if I wanted to speak to them, if I heard anything on the street, if I came up with anything that I thought could be used as evidence. I felt like a detective myself, to be honest with you. But 
the silence of the streets mm. when this happens to kids is the no talk because you're a snitch, no talk because, you know, it's the law of the street. But these people need to realise that the law of the street one day could be them because, like I said at the beginning of this conversation, JJ wasn't involved in gangs and it was a gang that turned up and they were looking for somebody else that was in a gang and JJ just happened to be, as people say, in the wrong place at the wrong time. But JJ lived and breathed in Upper Street the whole of his 28 years of his life. Being in Upper Street would be JJ going to the local shop, the local petrol station, anything, because we lived in Milner Square. So who really was the people that were wrong in the wrong place? Was it the people carrying the knives? Was it the people that had the argument? Do you think it's possible that you might know the person who killed JJ? I've looked that person in the eyes. I know he killed my son. I just can't prove it. Because when he was in the courtroom, he wouldn't answer any questions. He brought a barrister to a non-criminal court that day. And whenever they took him back down, because in the old Bailey, you've got the single man cells downstairs and the spiral staircases. And when they took him back down, he was hitting the walls and banging all the doors of the cells and shouting and screaming his mouth off when he went back down. And all I actually said to this individual was, I know you're not going to answer any of my questions because you're allowed to ask them 10 questions. I said, because you haven't answered any of the questions that the judge has asked you. I said, I only have one question for you and maybe you might find it in yourself to answer that question. And I said, do you have any empathy or sympathy towards my son's death? And he looked me stone cold in the eye with no emotion and went, I can't answer that question. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I think now would be a good time to take a break and take stock. I am J.A. Lovelock. Join us next time to hear the concluding part of Michelle McPhillips' story. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.